But we've just sung and we've just prayed that we would meet the Lord Jesus in his word. So please would you turn with me to page 14 in the Bibles as we continue this um, series on the life of Abraham, a stranger in a foreign country. So page 14, just have that open because we will come to it in a moment. What would you say is the greatest threat to the church in the Western world? Well, it's been said that the greatest threat isn't aggressive secularism or ignorance of Christian things or terrorism. The greatest threat is quite simply comfort and plenty. The single factor most likely to draw Christians away from trusting Jesus isn't poverty or pain, it's plenty. It's getting too comfortable and finding life too easy without reference to God. I wonder what you make of that, whether you agree with that assessment. Well, in this series that we've been following in the life of Abraham, we've seen him over the last couple of weeks, we've seen him face, last week we saw him, we've seen him face the test of famine. And uh, you can catch up with that by listening to last week's sermon online if you, if you weren't here. Famine caused Abraham's faith to waver. He forgot God and he had to be rescued, which showed us that he's not some kind of superhuman giant in spiritual things. He's a normal human being, just like you and me. And he has to learn to trust God. And God uses the, the experiences he goes through in his life to help him to do that. But now in chapters 13 and 14, <clears throat> we turn to a test not of famine, but a test of plenty, a test of comfort. And the issue in these two chapters is how to respond to things going well, to success, to victory, to answered prayers. You know, when things seem to go well, when you, you, you get the bonus or the promotion or she says yes or you get the keys for the new house or the new car, well, we, we don't probably see those things as a test, do we? But they can be. And more than that, the things that challenge us in our lives, the things that we do find painful, that we, te- we often tend to focus on, those things can distract us from the fact that whatever our circumstances For for, for many of us, our lives are still marked by plenty in comparison to much of the world today. Plenty is the issue. First, in chapter 13, now we're not going to read chapter 13, our focus is going to be on chapter 14, but let me just summarise what happens in chapter 13. Do you remember remember at the end of chapter 12, Abraham ended up with loads of property? that was plundered from the Egyptians. He had sheep, cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maidservants, and camels. And then, uh, what do we see? Well, verses 5 to 7 in chapter 13, we see having plenty isn't always good. Abraham and his nephew Lot have a bit of a falling out because they've got all this livestock and there's no space for it. It's a case of, you know, this town ain't big enough for the both of us. And so they part company. And Abraham is fair-minded. He says to Lot, I cut, you choose. And Lot looks around and he sets his eyes on the well-watered plain of the Jordan, which is in the south of the land of Canaan towards its border. And it reminds him of Egypt, we're told, which is a little bit of a warning sign. 
and he settles near the city of Sodom. And straight away, Moses reminds his readers, verse 13, the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. And so Lot is taking a risk. It's a risk to go and live near a city like that. And it's not the wisest choice, as we will see. But Lot is seduced by the comfort and the prosperity of land that reminds him of fertile and godless Egypt. And the chapter ends with God spelling out a little bit more of his promise to Abraham. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring. But now, new promise, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. So that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Great promise. And we come then to chapter 14, which is a tale of two kinsmen and some kings. And uh, I'm going to read it now. It begins with what seems like a bit of an interlude about a whole bunch of kings. So you really need to stay with me as we read this, okay, and try and, and, try and follow it. Uh, because it sounds like just a bunch of kings with unpronounceable names. What, you know, what's going on here? The key king to follow in this, as I read it, is King Kedaleoma. Okay, he's there in verse 1. Can you see him? Kedaleoma. Okay, follow him and see what happens to him and his friends. So verse 1 of chapter 14. At this time, Amraphel, king of Shina, Arioch, king of Elisa, Kedaleoma, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeba, king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sidim, the Salt Sea. For 12 years, they had been subject to Kedalioma, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. In the 14th year, Kedalioma and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephaites in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shava Kiriathaim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir as far as El Paran near the desert. Then they turned back and went to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites, who were living in Hazazun Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoah, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Kedalioma, king of Adam, Tidal king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shina, and Ariok, king of Elisa. Four kings against five. Now, the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fell, fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, then they went away. So, are you with it so far? Just press the pause button there. How are you getting on? So Kedalioma, here's the point, they, they and his allies, they are the bullies on the block. Geographically speaking, they are Babylon, basically, or, or in fact Iran and Iraq today, that's where they live. And for 12 years, they subject the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and their allies, um, which are to the west of them, and they're kind of uh, subjecting them, they're, they're taking their lunch money, basically. They are sort of um, making sure 
that they are the guys who are in charge. Until one day those kings rebel. But Kedalioma and his allies go on manoeuvres. And those, that middle section, verses 5 to 7, are just a load of other people and kings that they take out on the way to go and teach the king of Sodom and his allies a lesson. And then verse 8, verse eight they arrive and that's what happens. The men of Sodom and Gomorrah um, and the kings, as they flee, they fall into tar pits and their goods are seized. And so thus far, we might be thinking, well, this is a you know, fascinating history lesson. But why do I need to know this? And we find out why this is in the Bible. Because there'll be plenty of stories like this in the ancient world of kings uh, fighting against other kings. Why is it here in the Bible? Well, verse 12 tells us why. So let me read the rest of it uh, from verse 12. They also carried off Abraham's nephew, Lot, and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. One who had escaped came and reported this to Abraham the Hebrew. Now, Abraham was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Ana, all of whom were allied with Abraham. When Abraham heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abraham divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his nephew Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. After Abraham returned from defeating Cade Leoma and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abraham rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who were with me, to Aina, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them have their share. So, what a story. This is a test of plenty. What do you do when things go well? As they do here for Abraham, don't they? How will Abraham respond? One of the big themes through the story of Abraham is how and whether Abraham will be any different from Adam and Eve in the way that they sinned in the Garden of Eden. Their sin when they ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was about doubting God's generosity and doubting God's integrity. So what, can you remember what the serpent said to Eve? Don't worry if you've not heard this before, but this is what she, the serpent says to Eve. You will not surely die. 
which is doubting God's integrity, do you see? Um, that, he's, that he does what he says he's going to do, that he keeps his promises. No, 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 you won't die, you won't die. And then the serpent goes on, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So obviously God is a spoil sport and he's trying to stop you from fulfilling your potential, which is doubting God's generosity, do you see? that he's deliberately withholding from them something that they deserve to have, that they ought to have, that they can have, if only they defy their creator and get it for themselves. So the question is, that was what Adam and Eve did, is Abraham going to be any different in his life? And when we struggle to trust God in times of famine, like Abraham in the second half of chapter 12, well, actually, this is what we're doing then as well, doubting that he's generous and doubting that he keeps his promises. Doubting that even though it may be painful now, it it won't always be like this. Because God loves his people. He sent Jesus to die for us. Life with him in the new heavens and the new earth is coming. But that's times of famine. Actually, in times of plenty, we still face the same question. Will we believe all good things come from a generous loving God? And will we trust him to keep his promises or will we start to imagine that we can create our own perfect heaven on our own? That's the question Abraham faces in this chapter too. So let's see that as we, as we work through it. Verses 1 to 16, first of all then, the undeserving one is rescued. And you can follow this on the back of the purple sheet. The undeserving one is rescued. Just notice the the throwaway phrase at the end of verse 12. They carried off Abraham's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living. Where was he living? What does it say? It says he was living in Sodom. Now, the last we heard of Lot, do you remember chapter 13 I mentioned? He'd made the unwise choice of living near Sodom. No doubt at the time, you know, justifying it to himself and anyone who was listening, you know, well, the land is so fertile here and I can really make a life for my family, but I know my boundaries. You won't find me in that wicked city of Sodom. No way. It would never happen to me. But it's like an alcoholic choosing to live next to a pub or a a teenage couple who say, we're just going to happen to fall asleep in the same bed. You know, nothing's going to happen. Sure enough, now Lot is living in Sodom. He's been a fool. He's been seduced by appearances. He's, he's ignored the warning signs, and now he's in trouble. And the thing is, it's his fault. Can you imagine how he felt as he and his family are carried off from the city of Sodom, where he's tried to make his home, with all their possessions? A sense of having lost absolutely everything. And even worse, the sense that were it not for his bad decisions along the way, this would have been entirely avoidable. What a fool. But Abraham the Hebrew has other plans, we're told. What does Lot deserve from Abraham after their falling out? After he gets himself into this ridiculous mess by poor decisions? It would be easy for Abraham to say, well, you know what, Lot? That's just tough. You've got what's coming to you. But what does he do, verse 14? 
He rouses his 318 trained men. It's like the Wild West, you know, where everyone has to be protected with their own fighting force. And he sets out in the night. He pursues the mighty Kedalioma, who's held all these other mighty kings in bondage for over 14 years. And in one night, with a tiny army, he gives them a pasting and he recovers all the stolen goods and his nephew Lot and everyone with him. Now, why would Abraham do this? Why should he risk everything he has to save undeserving Lot and rescue him from this mess? Well, because this is exactly how he himself has been treated by God. We saw that last time. He was in a scrape. He was about to lose his wife forever with Pharaoh, and God steps in and rescues him. So do you see, grace breeds more grace. We sometimes struggle when we've been hurt by somebody, especially perhaps by somebody close to us when the pain is felt the most deep. And we think, well, how can I ever forgive this person? They've hurt me so deeply. And the answer is, well, you will be able to forgive them only when you realise how much you have been forgiven by God. Which means, unlike Adam and Eve, as we were thinking before, trusting God's generosity in forgiving us who don't deserve it, and trusting that when he says that that has happened, it has happened not kind of questioning it. No, believe what it says in the Bible. When you put your trust in Jesus, you are forgiven. And therefore, you can forgive others too. It's in the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That is the only way that we will find the resources to forgive others. You know, whether we're talking everyday annoyances and frustrations that go with human relationships, or we're talking massive hurts and pains that we've experienced. That is the point here. And so often our instinct in these situations is to say, well, does this person deserve my help? Can I help them? Can I, can I show love to them without costing myself anything? But Abraham goes into battle for Lot, even though the answer to both of those questions is no, he doesn't deserve it and it's going to cost Abraham a lot. But he knows that that is how God has treated him. And it's how God has treated us. While we were still sinners, totally undeserving, Christ died for us. It cost him everything. So the undeserving one is rescued. And then verses uh, 17 to 20, we see all the glory goes to God. So that's the second thing. All the glory goes to God. And we focus now in the, in the end of this chapter on two kings, the, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem, or which was later to become Jerusalem, the king of Salem. We, we, we get the details first on the king of Salem in these verses, the mysterious Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek appears by name just twice in the Old Testament and once in the New Testament. He's here in Genesis chapter 14. There's a reference to him in Psalm 110. And then, as we heard in the, in the, the first reading that we had, the author of Hebrews spends an entire chapter talking about him. And basically says to the Hebrews, you know, the sign of how immature you are is that you don't understand the significance of Melchizedek. 
which leaves us scratching our heads a little bit as we read that. So who is he? Well, verse 18, we're told he's a king and he's also a priest. Very unusual. Usually you're one or the other, but here he is both. And he's not a standard Old Testament priest because the, the, old, the standard ones are, are sons of Levi and his descendant Aaron. And Levi hasn't been born at this point. This guy is a one-off and he's from outside the people of God. He's not related to Abraham. And he tells Abraham what's really going on here. Now first, just note this, he doesn't ask for anything, but he gives him bread and wine. Verse 18, the food of kings. He blesses him. And in the first reading, we heard the writers of the Hebrews spelling out the significance of this. You see, you don't generally bless people who are more important or significant than you. The more important person blesses the lesser person. So you think about it, you can't give the queen a knighthood, or a damehood, as it's called. But she will bless her subjects who have achieved something particularly significant with a knighthood or a damehood. She is the one who blesses, because she is the queen. And the only exception to this, actually, is God himself, because the Bible does talk about us blessing God, but that is totally different from how he blesses us. Blessing God means that we recognize him as the one who is full of blessing. So when Abraham himself is blessed by somebody else, Abraham, who's right at the center of God's plans, who's at the beginning of the new start for, um, for God's people, when he himself is blessed by someone else, that is pretty significant. And then to sort of show that that's true and to strengthen that, Abraham gives him a tenth of everything. He gives him a tithe. And this is what you do for someone you feel obliged to, someone you revere and respect. And this is Abraham, who's just completed a famous victory with only 318 men. He could expect to command respect everywhere he went. But he is blessed by Melchizedek and he gives him a tenth of everything. And the author to the Hebrews says, just think how great Melchizedek was. So what is going on here then? Well, this is Abraham deflecting the glory for his victory away from himself and giving it all to God. This is God's work, not Abraham's. And we are to do the same. The reason Hebrews makes so much of Melchizedek is because Jesus is described as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Do you notice that? Jesus is a king as well, isn't he? He's a king and a priest. The only other person in whom that office is combined. And, and the, the, the author to the Hebrews is saying, Jesus is not a priest in the tribe of Levi because the priests of the tribe of Levi were unable to provide sacrifices that took away sin and they came and went and they lived and died and their sacrifices had to be made again and again in the temple. Jesus is a priest of a different kind, an eternal priest, without beginning or end, so that he can offer sacrifice for sin once and for all. And so because he's like, without beginning or end, he's like Melchizedek, who in the narrative of Genesis just turns up one day and then disappears again, and we never hear about him again. He's an eternal priest in that sense, and Jesus is like him. And the point with Jesus is that he is then, because he is eternal without beginning or end. He's able to make us right with God once and for all. 
So for us as Christians today, in the face of how we have been saved, if we're trusting in Jesus today, in the face of the plenty we've been given by him in all kinds of ways, the point for us is to give glory to God through his eternal priest, King, Jesus. That's what this passage means for Christians. And that then is the test of plenty. Will it lead us to praise God through his priest king like Abraham did? Or will we try and take the credit for ourselves? I was talking to someone this week about a visit they'd made to some relatives. And there were three generations sitting down for lunch. Among others, a Christian grandmother, her non-Christian children and non-Christian grandchildren. And the, the Christian grandmother tried to make a point of saying grace of thanking God for the meal in front of them. But the family just laughed at her. God didn't make this food. We made this food. Don't be ridiculous. But it's so easy to get into that kind of mindset, isn't it? You know, I worked hard for this money. I worked hard for this house, this family, this life. It's mine. In the case of food, never mind the question of where the ingredients came from. Well, you know, they they came from a farm. Uh, How did they come out of the ground? Well, you know, the farmer planted them. Uh, He he caused the crops to grow, did he? Well, you know, it's just the law of nature that does that. Well, where where did this law of nature come from? What is this universe with its ordered seasons and ways of feeding people? Couldn't it just be that there is a God? But we would so easily would rather focus on the very last step in the process, the bit where we did some work and then take credit for everything, like the guy in the car factory whose job is to stick the final plastic trim on a car as it rolls off the production line, and then he tries to take credit for the design and production of the whole thing. We do it with created things that God has graciously given us, and we so easily do it with salvation itself taking what God has given us in Christ for granted, or thinking it's something we somehow have to earn for ourselves or contribute to ourselves. If we're trusting in Jesus, then we can end every day, whatever has happened, with a heartfelt prayer of thanks for Jesus, because in him, God has given us what we don't deserve. When we take the credit for ourselves, or we refuse to give the credit to God, we grumble about the things that have happened to us in our lives, we're being like Adam and Eve again. We're doubting that God is generous. We're doubting that he keeps his promises. And Abraham is saying no to all that. He's saying all the glory goes to God. And he gives, as a sign of that, this tithe in response to what he recognises God has given him. And, And that reminds us that all our giving that we might do as Christians must always flow out of recognising what we have received from God. Now, for Christians, that sort of tithe thing, the kind of 10%, well, it's just a guide, isn't it? It might be much more, it might be much less. That's the way the New Testament approaches this. But the the, the point is, Christians who recognise the generosity of God in their lives will give generously back to him with time and money and service and so on. So that is the second thing. All the glory goes to God. And then thirdly, he meets the king of Sodom. He meets the king of Sodom and we see shortcuts 
to blessing and glory are rejected. In the final verses, shortcuts to blessing and glory are rejected. We, we, we know by now not to expect great things from the king of Sodom, and he doesn't disappoint. He, he in effect, tries to cut a deal with Abraham. No, no gift of bread and wine, not giving him anything. He just wants to take what he can from the spoils. You know, after all, it was the king of Sodom's stuff, along with Lot, that Abraham recaptured from Kedalioma and his allies. And the implication is that perhaps Abraham should view it as commission. You know, you've been a very effective hatchet man for me there, Abraham. Let's go halves, maybe, on, you know, my, on my stuff that you've recovered for me. You know, I'll take the, the people. You can keep the goods. And Abraham is clear in his response. I'm taking nothing from you because I never want it to be said that you made me rich. Do you see, the king of Sodom is offering a kind of counterfeit glory to Abraham. And he's giving him a shortcut to get there. And Abraham says he's having none of it. It's like Jesus in the desert with Satan. Just worship me, says Satan, and all the world will be yours. And of course, think about that. That's a counterfeit promise. Jesus will inherit the world as its true king, but only after he has gone to the cross and suffered and died. And Satan is offering him a shortcut to get there. Don't bother with the cross. Just worship me, and I'll give you everything I have, which, of course, in the end is absolutely nothing. And that's what the king of Sodom is offering to Abraham too. You can have all my stuff. No need for Abraham to wait on God's promise of blessing in the future. You can have it all now. But at the cost of effectively being bought by the king of Sodom. <clears throat> who would no doubt go around boasting how the up-and-coming Abram was now signed to him to do his bidding. Now don't we do the same? We hedge our bets on eternity. You know, we know what is in store is eternity with Christ in a world free of pain and suffering, all our hopes and dreams fulfilled in him, but we don't quite believe it enough to not try and have a little bit of glory and blessing now too. You know, can't we have both, we think? And so we end up sort of trying to compartmentalise our hopes and dreams. You know, of, course, of course, as a Christian, I'm longing for eternity. Of course I am, but at work... I'm dreaming of reaching the top. And at home, I'm dreaming of the best opportunities for my children and of peak physical fitness and the dream house, and so it goes on. But the thing is, when we dream of those things and they consume our hearts, we're settling for counterfeit glory. Because not only do those things so easily turn out to be not quite as great as they promised to be in the end, they also distract us from the only thing that actually matters in the end, which is knowing Jesus and living for him. So like Abraham, if we're trusting in Jesus, we are on a journey of faith. And sometimes that journey means waiting and trusting rather than having everything sorted right now. See, that the world would tell us otherwise. The world would say, you know, you, you can't trust God, really, and, and his ways are not good. And so really, if you're going to be wise, you do need to hedge your bets a bit and, and compromise. So when God says in the Bible that sex is intended for marriage between a man and a woman, you know, not before that, not outside that, well, the world says, don't be ridiculous. You can have your glory now. There's no need to wait for it. 
Take the shortcut. But the thing is, it's a shortcut to a counterfeit glory that makes us children of the world rather than children of God. When God says in the Bible that more money doesn't always equal happiness, again, the world says, well, don't, don't be ridiculous. Of course it does. You know, do, do, just keep climbing the ladder, no matter the cost for you and your family and your faith. You can have your glory now. But the thing is, it's a shortcut to counterfeit glory. Abraham was clear. He would not be known as one who had been bought by the king of Sodom, the king of all that was worldly in that time. Better to wash his hands entirely of all the spoils of victory, the victory that belonged to God anyway. It wasn't Abraham's victory. So all the glory would go to God, and Abraham is quite content to walk away. So that is the test of plenty, of comfort that Abraham faces. Maybe we feel a bit convicted by what we've heard this morning. Well, if that's us, and I think all of us in different ways might, might feel this, well, let's remember that Abraham was just as flawed as he was faithful. He trusted God because he believed God was generous and that he keeps his promises. And that includes believing God still loves us even in our weakness and our failures and our flaws and our sin. And what should we do in response? We should throw ourselves on his grace, ask for his Holy Spirit to work in our hearts so that we're able to say no to these things that we know take us away from God. Maybe this is new. If you're not yet trusting Jesus like Abraham trusted God, well, let me say it's great that you're here. Do keep coming and seeing more about what it meant for Abraham to trust and to have faith. Because, you see, faith for Abraham wasn't a magic superpower he had to develop from within himself. It was Faith for Abraham was simply about understanding more and more about who God is and how he is generous and how he can be trusted. So as we face tests of plenty as well as tests of famine... Let's forget the lies of Adam and Eve in the garden. Let's remind each other that all good things come from God, that he keeps his promises. And so, like Abraham, we can trust him. Let me pray now. Perhaps take a moment to think of one thing that strikes us from these verses that we want to reflect on as we go into this week. Father, we pray that just as you were at work in the messy life of Abraham with all its ups and downs, that you would be be at work in ours too. Thank you for your grace, which frees us to show grace to one another and to those around us. Please may we give you all the glory in our lives Would we be praising you and thanking you for Jesus, whatever our circumstances? 
in want or in plenty. Would all the glory go to you? And would we therefore stand firm when we're offered shortcuts to counterfeit blessing and glory? Would we have our trust firmly and only in Jesus? So we can live in this world with our eyes fixed on the promise of the world to come. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.